0: This week, Michael Santarcangelo is out this week, and we're going to do our best to fill the void left by his absence. So this week's show will feature Masha Sadova from Elevate Security joining us talking about shaping security culture. In our leadership, communication, and innovation segment, we discuss promoting people to their level of incompetence, who is getting the most sleep, B2B marketing, the best mentors ask the best questions, and avoiding buzzword bingo. And in our Tracking Security Innovation segment, Fortinet, Qualys, Panor Pan- Panerais, Panorays, yes, one login. Stay tuned for all that and more because Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show about security startups, how to secure your startup, and advice for security startups. It's Business Security Weekend. I need it from the top! Brought to you by... Are you getting pressure to improve your data security? Would you like a faster, easier, better way to patch? Then you need to check out AutoMox. AutoMox is a cloud-native platform that patches and manages every endpoint, even remote servers and devices, including Windows, Mac, Linux, and third-party software, from a single dashboard. Improve your cyber hygiene, reduce your attack surface, and save 90% of the effort you spend patching. AutoMox, your patching system of record. Do you have a website, an external presence, employees, an office? Any of these things can be compromised and attacked. How are you defending your assets? Have you penetration tested your public assets? Start 2018 by taking a proactive approach to securing your vulnerable areas. Black Hills Information Security has been helping companies find their weaknesses since 2008. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com and see how they can help you sleep better at night. Welcome, everyone, to episode 88 of Business Security Weekly for June 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. On the lines via Skype, we bring on the wizard of entrepreneurship, Mr. Matt Alderman. Matt, welcome.
1: Thank you. Great ad to open it up because, you know, I advise automox, so it's always good to see their ad. There
0: you go. There you go. And your your wizardry is, is helping them. Uh we're yes. actually looking at implementing Automox uh here in the studio uh for our systems uh which is funny cuz I mean we don't have like 10,000 endpoints right but the small amount like dozen or maybe two dozen endpoints that we have are super important to be able to produce the show uh so yeah where Automox uh was high up on our list Great. um so Good choice. I, I I just uh, yeah I think it and things have been going really well with them so um, and we hope to have them on the show soon. I don't know when they're scheduled, but I'm looking forward to that. I've got uh, this little award uh, that we won. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone uh, who was involved, both people here at Security Weekly and everyone who voted. I know it's hard to see, but this is the 2018 Most Educational Blog from the Security Bloggers Meetup. Uh, was We won that award. So thank you to everyone who voted and uh, participated in that. And thanks to everyone that makes this show happen the list is is way too long to go through now. But uh, yeah, we just got the award, which is awesome. The actual physical award, which is pretty cool. Um, So also make sure you check out our on-demand material. Some of our previously recorded webcasts are out there, including the state of endpoint security, securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. If you missed a webcast, it could be there. Not all of our webcasts are archived there, but select ones are. So make sure you go check that out, especially if you're into... Uh, learning about penetration testing or endpoint security. All righty. And with that, we'd like to uh, welcome back, actually, Masha Sadova from Elevate Security uh, to the Security Weekly Network. She appeared on Paul Security Weekly. We did a hacker movie trivia as well, which has been posted. Masha, I don't know if you saw that. that was, it's pretty entertaining. But Masha's here today at Business Security Weekly. Masha, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be back. Uh, it- I always enjoy speaking with you. Although I don't necessarily think that my hacker movie trivia was my best performance. Ah,
0: you so. did great. It was entertaining. I mean, with some hints, you know, it's, it's okay.
1: Yeah. I bet she did better yeah. than I did. I'm not very good at it either. So I think you it's might okay. you might
0: be the bottom of the barrel for that <laughs> <laughs> for
1: that Matt.
2: <laughs> uh, well, someone, someone's got to be the minimum. We can hold down that, that part of the the graph. <laughs> That's
0: right. I need to come up with some more trivia as well. We've been using the same questions for a little while. So at Black Hat and DEF CON, uh, we'll actually be there. We'll be at the pool. Uh, I think I made the announcement last week. We'll be in the pool area at Mandalay Bay and at Caesars, um, doing some recordings there. So make sure you stop by and check us out, have more information as that starts to unfold. Um, Masha we spoke uh, uh, you know about this interview obviously uh, senior security leaders uh, and executives are the primary audience for this show and we started talking about shaping security culture and how we build uh, awareness into our programs and what that looks like from uh, the leaders perspective um, so I don't know if you want to kind of start us off about how we can shape security culture from those higher level positions
2: yeah before we even get into how I think, it might make sense to start with the why, because often I have conversations with security leaders who say, well, humans are the weakest link. Shouldn't we just be investing full on into technology because someone's always gonna click, so what's the point? And my answer to that is, yeah, that is a solution, but if you don't have thoughtful employees who you're educating and empowering, you're not fighting back with everything you have. And of course, your employees are not going to be your perfect solution, but neither is your technology stack. So the companies that are leading the way in security and as as far as, as, far as it relates to being full stack defense, really think about empowering their employees. And so what does it mean to empower your employees? Especially at a C-level and at a leadership level, for me, and what I've seen work in other organizations, is it's answering the question, how do I have a thoughtful security culture? How do I make sure my employees have security top of mind and embed it into the work that they do? How do I make sure that we don't aggregate security debt and mistakes as we build out architecture and continue to make the trade-off around, do we go faster or do we become less risky? And how do we, as an organization, and as a leadership level, know where that trade-off is between risk and growth. So uh, happy to go into what I've seen work, but you know, I think we'll yeah. probably cover that later.
0: It's funny when you say that. I think of our own organization uh, here at Security Weekly. And... It's it's easier for us, right? I mean, the employees that work here—they're not security experts. However, you know, all week the shows that we record are being played in the, you know, in the in the area where the employees are. We go to all the security events uh, together. They interact with the people who are affiliated with the show, being the host and being the guest, all of whom—I mean, pretty close to one hundred percent—all work in security and have security as their day job. So there, I mean, it, it is part of the culture, just in the way that we do business. And we're lucky, you know, I'm lucky in, in that, that I don't have to expend a lot of effort as it just happens naturally. But if we were an insurance company, or we were a retail company, that that's a much harder thing to get into the culture like that. And, and so how do we, you know, how do we, you know, kind of bridge that gap between, well, you know, we are a security company and, you know, my employees benefit from that to a company that isn't that Closely tied to the security community and culture, how do you build that into their everyday jobs?
2: Yeah, so I think security uh, employees or people who do security for a living have the have the opportunity to understand that security risks are out there, and they understand how real and relevant and prevalent they are in the organization um, and across across the business network. But if you work for an insurance company or a marketing company or anywhere where the majority of populations is, isn't security professional, then you're not getting exposed, your employees and your executives aren't getting exposed to what it means to have an appropriate threat register. And I've had the opportunity of working with a variety of different C-level executives over the course of my career, and I found that the executives who who got security the most and by uh, proxy their organizations were those who managed, uh, who had the opportunity, sarcastically, Mm -hmm. um, uh, to go through a security incident, have had a breach under their watch or some kind of major security catastrophe where they understood the impact of not investing in security. And they were able to continue that out you know, in their future career. But for organizations that don't have those type of leaderships or more importantly don't have uh, employees who've experienced that, you know, that's where as a security team, you can you can share your knowledge and expertise in thoughtful ways. Um, I actually find that having security simulations, things that give people, I call it like simulated scar. So how do we give people... The, the pain of having to react to a security incident without actually having to go through a breach. So red team attacks are a phenomenal way of being able to simulate that pain. Um, going through tabletop simulations, having you know virtual game experiences where people actually have to consider what it'd be like to react to an incident and essentially give people some of the knowledge of this is a real threat, it does apply to my job and I have to consider this in addition to all the other um, things that that relate to my job, whether or not it's insurance or marketing or whatever.
0: yeah, I, I you know when I looked at the Equifax uh, breach and all of the details that were made public and everything I'd read, I, I pretty much came to the conclusion fairly early on that there wasn't much of a security culture there, that there wasn't something that was driving decisions to say, we really shouldn't let things go like not upgrading things for a really long time because something bad could happen now I'm sure fast forward to today that that's a much different conversation but you know I guess it kind of begs the question also how do we get organizations there without having them experience a breach even if they've got some kind of red team exercise I've still seen organizations go well yeah that was still just an exercise or yeah we're still not gonna we're still not gonna change So are there ongoing things that we can do in an awareness campaign to allow people slowly over time to to come over uh, to the security culture side rather than just, you know, like one, I find that like one thing just like shot across the bow doesn't really work.
2: Right. So before we go into like what are the day-to-day steps, it really is valuable to understand where do we want to go. And so when I say security culture, I probably have a different picture in my mind than when you say security culture or when the head of security for a large bank says security culture. And one of the best ways that I've actually seen that pers- uh, detailed and actually explained is this framework called competing security culture framework. And what it basically has is these two axes, right? So your x-axis says is internal focus on one end and an external focus on the other. And then your y-axis is tight control versus loose control, and the idea here is you have four quadrants, and depending on where you fall into these quadrants, um, you can have different definitions of security culture. So I'll give you an example: a company that really cares about a security culture that has tight internal, tight control, and internal focus is really focused on process, and they're real, they're big. Sort of north star around security culture is enforcing policy. So things like the government is really big on that, military, right? So having a secure culture means everyone follows the rules. Now, if you have tight control but external focus, you're focused on passing audits. So financial companies, insurance companies really care about that quadrant and making sure that the check boxes all get met on time and with an expectation. And security culture in that concept is that everyone knows what they're responsible for and they make sure that they deliver it on time so that when an external auditor comes in, it's totally done. Now, if you look at the other end of the the, the bottom half of the quadrant, there's loose control and internal focus, which is empowering people. This is where I've grown up in my days of Salesforce, which is how do we get people to communicate, to participate, to involve? And I speak a lot about this at conferences around positive motivation and engagement. But if you don't work for an organization that says, you know, we're going to fire you at all costs if you don't follow the policy, like in the case of government, then empowering people is kind of one of the best things you have to, to go for. And so if you're empowering people, what does that mean? That means you really are giving people kudos and applause whenever they do the correct thing. You have um, opportunities to recognize leadership um, in in, organi- in parts of your business that are going above and beyond in shipping, let's say, de- secure products or, or creating new and thoughtful, secure processes. And then that leaves us the last quadrant, which is loose control and external focus, which is basically get results no matter what. And this, you'll see this a lot more in like early stage startups or um, smaller tech companies, for example, which really value flexibility, agility, and innovation. So like, don't tell me how to do it, just get it done, right? So when we say security culture, there's not one culture that fits everybody. And so If I were to be in the shoes of a CISO who's thinking about this maybe for the first time or rethinking about shaping my culture, I need to think about what are my, um, cardinal directions, right? You can't just say get results if you work for, let's say a large insurance company who said, I appreciate that, you know, you have, um, fantastic drop and click through rates, but you know, your patching isn't anywhere near where our audit supplies are or our audit, um, requirements are. So figuring out who you have to please, who your masters are, what is your culture currently? And what does the gap between where you are and where you need to go look like? Um, And that's kind of where your roadmap looks like. And And it may be that you need training, but it may not be. It may be that you need more thoughtful incentives around making sure, again, you recognize and you you value the correct behavior, however you define correct behavior for your organization.
0: Matt, I want to turn it over to you. I know you uh, haven't had an
1: opportunity to speak yet. So, <laughs> well, I mean, she brought in an interesting point, right? Is that you think about. Com- compliance is one of those drivers for building out aspects of a of, of a security culture, right? And and in the early days, security was the way we were driving our security programs. And so when you think about the financials and the externally focused, focused on the audit, that's a really interesting way to think about how early compliance kind of drove our security postures. Now you're seeing security coming from different angles, which I, I thought the four quadrants was interesting. Is there something when you're not under regulatory compliance and, and kind of fit in that one quadrant, how do you figure out what that balance between risk and reward is? Right. And in coming from the GRC mm-hmm. space, you know, taking on risk also opens up opportunity. And so is is are are there guidelines to balance those that aren't necessarily regulated? Because I think it's harder for them to figure out what that right culture, what that right quadrant or or approach that they want to be in.
2: Matt, That's a great question. Yeah. And I actually don't think there's any one absolute truth for this. Although we as security professionals say, you have to be secure at all costs, no matter what. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that's not you know, the most secure organiz- or the most secure computer, is the one that's unplugged, not touching, at, like at the bottom of the ocean, right? Um, and that's not revenue generating. It's not, you know, connecting, not networking. So, um, there's a saying. Probably, all heard this, but you know, the br- brakes exist in a car not to slow it down, but so that the car can go faster. And we have to figure out for security as as business leaders, what is that perfect pivot point between going as fast as we can without compromising our um, the safety of our business. And the dirty truth of this is that for some organizations, it might not be a large investment in security. And for some businesses, it really is a large investment. The, the problem that I think we run into is that most security leader, or most leaders, not security um, uh, leaders necessarily, don't understand what they're truly trading off. And, and what it means to have a security incident. So yes, you know, stock prices might go back up, but what are the other impacts to your organization, um, that you may not be considering and what, what are potential, uh, brand and trust losses that you could, you could be facing and how do you measure that? And at what point is it worth investing some amount of money but knowing that a breach might still be inevitable. I don't think there's a perfect answer, but I really do think this is a conversation that as leaders, we need to be having and educating our uh, counterparts and our businesses around um, what does the true cost of a breach look like? So that uh, let's say if I was the head of sales, I would know, you know, do I go with that vendor or not? How much I know how much money is on the table, but now you've educated for me about what the impact to my business could be should should this this vendor get breached, for example?
1: Yeah, because if you look at some of the previous breaches, right, you know, Target and Home Depot, you know, you see the, the impact on the stock, but then the recovery, right. So if I'm I'm a business leader in in those organizations, now there there were other implications, right, but you could say, look, financially, they didn't take that big of a hit. I mean, yeah, they paid some fines, they had some stuff to do, but from a stock and like the future of the company they've fully recovered after those breaches. And so that's, that makes this business discussion really interesting because both of those companies weathered the storm pretty well. Even Equifax right, is weathering that storm. Our data is still in Equifax, even though they got breached because they're one of the three credit bureaus. So it's always this interesting balance that I think is hard for people to get their arms around. And you're right, as security professionals, we're like, lock it down. But can you justify that expense sometimes when the penalty's not that high?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually think one of the biggest um, costs of a breach is how much it interrupts your uh, work for your organization, because how many hands are on deck in in recovering all that your sales department is now trained to answer customer objections. And yes, your deals might still close. But um, how much of that gets delayed? How are you going to have a bad quarter? Sure, like you might have a better quarter afterwards. But running a business as interrupt driven is highly ineffective and highly disruptive, um, to, to creating stability. There's also significant cost in, you know, loss of morale in your employees. Uh, and it's going to take you a long time to measure, but how lo- how hard is your recruiting after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. How many people have left? Like, in the 6 to, to 6 months that it might take them to find another job at the end of it. So the impact isn't entirely measured in stock prices which as you rightfully pointed out Matt doesn't doesn't seem to suffer for much time. But yes you have fines and regulations, but you have much more of an impact into like the stability and the groundedness of your organization and that has almost intangible costs that are hard to measure until until a breach like that happens.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, really quite a few pages out of the Phoenix Project, right? And if you've read that book, uh, those of us here today or, or in the audience, it really talks about the cost of interruptions. And you can really see in the characters in the, in the book, the morale be at a really low point and gradually improve as they work on their processes now their issue wasn't necessarily a breach but it might it, it very well could have been right i mean their their problems were more systemic but a breach can highlight a lot of those issues and have the same impact to the organization where you now have to stop what you're doing progress is at a standstill and you have to go work on something else and you're not making progress on keeping pace with the market or putting out new features or you know new product offerings and I think that's a really big deal that I don't often think executives take into consideration when they're considering the potential risk of doing something or not doing something in the light of security.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, I think that breaks down to not just an executive level, but I also think it breaks down into an individual employee level, right? Let's say you're, you're a person who has to ship code and you're like, well, do I ship on time and securely or do I, or do I ship on time and insecurely or do I ship it late, but securely? Uh, And if I don't understand the impact of, of shipping um, insecure code, and I get rewarded and benefited for shipping code on time, my feature released, right? Mm-hmm. Then, like, I'm going to continuously make that decision around shipping code insecurely because I don't understand the impact, What, whatever, right? And so that education needs to come down at all levels of the organization. And part of it is an understanding thing, for sure. We have to absolutely make that trade-off. But part of it is also a reward and recognition. for Not everyone in the organization is going to have a deep... And meaningful, thoughtful understanding of like, okay, well, if I don't sign up for this, but I do sign up for that, this is what my r- threat profile and risk tolerance is going to be. Like, that's that's too nuanced for anybody, I think, outside of security. But if we can say, we as a company really care about security, what we need to be doing is shipping secure code, and it's okay if we ship late, you're going to start aggregating less security vulnerabilities over time. Um and less debt. Whether or not your employees, at a micro level, even understand that that's what they're doing, so they might really just say, "Oh, well, I work for a company that cares about that, or a company that doesn't." And that is something that comes from a leadership level, and that is where, if we can explain to a key person in an organization, say, "This is why where, where you need to be prioritizing," so that when your employees come to that pivot decision, what's the trade off? they know what their company values and they know what they are or are not going to get punished for.
0: Yeah, and it's really, you know, when when I think about we're uh, managing a software project, right? And you do come to those points quite often when you have to make decisions like, do we do some stuff that's plumbing or do we push out new features? And I think the, you know, technical debt and security debt are one and the same thing. And if you incur too much of that, well, that can be a really bad day all around and it's much better i think what we're learning in in with agile and with devops is to fix those things as you go so that you're not incurring too much debt and i think whether it's technical or security it's pretty much in the same in the same bucket
2: yeah i i actually want to ask you guys I, I have my own thoughts about this but how did we ever get to the stage where security became its own qa process right we have quality and then we have security in my mind Security should be part of quality, but somehow they're two different buckets for many different organizations. Um, I'd love to actually hear what you guys think on that.
1: Yeah, well, I, go ahead, Matt. yeah, I, I can go on this one for a little bit, right? I mean, because if we, <laughs> we think about development and the development process and all the changes, security has never been fully integrated into that process. We, we all, were always kind of at the end in this waterfall process. Security was at the end. And now that we've moved to Agile, we're sh- security's really at the end. What hasn't happened is the ability to bring security into the process earlier and make it part of the actual development process. And And I can see a shift coming where security isn't a standalone group. It could be pretty much integrated into the rest of the business arm I think organizations that are trying to figure that out now are really thought leading in bring security more into the process instead of leaving it at the end but yeah we got there in a really weird way and and the way technology is being driven now it it's really dangerous because we're we're always at the end of the pipeline
0: well and, and I think that it's the natural progression of uh, everyone in the organization understanding the impact of a security risk and I think we go back 10 years, there was no impact to the developer. Now there's maybe a little more, and I think we're slowly making those, uh, you know, progression to that point. But in, you know, when when I talk with software developers or people who are leading software development, and I try and make them understand, like, you get to decide what holds up a build. And you better put security in that bucket. And that in and of itself, is pushing security into the development process much earlier on. right? Developers today, whether you know it or, or not, are making decisions about you know, what, what is stop everything and work on it and what is just push out the release. If we can get security in those earlier stages, we're in much better shape. And I think we have the tools and, and techniques and, and processes today to do that. I still think it's a cultural thing that's trying to push it into those earlier stages. And, and I think Matt's right. There are some organizations that are doing that today and I agree. It should be part of the, and I've said for years that it should be part of the QA process. However, some people are twisting this and want to get, uh, you know, Masha and Matt's take on this to say, well, we don't, we don't need QA anymore, right? Like we're doing agile and we're, we're fixing our own bugs in the code and there's tools that are helping us identify, you know, bugs and security in, in the process early on. And then it just gets automatically tested as we push it out. So why, why do we need QA? I think development probably always say that, right? We don't need QA.
1: (laughs) Still needed. I mean, you still have to run through a set of unit tests and and verify that the behavior of the application is correct. If you can also integrate security and, and other aspects of the application security into that process, even better. I think the other thing that's happened is, you know, we went after detection response over the last number of years. If you look where a lot of the investments have gone, it's always been about, Uh, building out the advanced security operations center and really driving the security operation side of the fence, not necessarily looking back and going, well, how do we how do we move ourselves more to the, you know, this concept of shift left, right? Is you know, is this tech why don't we get controls into these new applications or this new technology infrastructure earlier? You know, we we spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to figure out how to decrease our our detection and response windows and We've barely made any dents in that over the last number of years. That's why I think this DevOps uh, movement has an opportunity to allow security to integrate itself into that process and, and be a little more uh, forward forward leaning in, in that respect. But, you know, th- that's just the way the market's moving. Mm.
2: I want want to try this back a little bit to some of the earlier questions that you were asking earlier. It's like, what does it mean to have a security culture? How do we do this? This is exactly it, right? That security is no longer um, something that just the security team owns and is The things that we just talked about is empower the people, right? This is very much around how do we enable human relationships in other organizations? So how do we drive participation, commitment, communication? In this case, what we're just talking about, it's um, on the part of developers or QA, right? Um, So how do we empower those people to understand their role? But um, if we think about uh, sort of what it really means to have a security culture that isn't compliance driven, which, you know, has, has its cons for sure. It, in my mind, it really is. How do we get every person to have a person like a, a, a sense of responsibility around that and whether or not it's running the right tests or being automated or, you know, having a good working relationship with your security champion, who's going to do those tests for you. Um, it's really about, you know, how does at every individual level people understand their, what they can do to contribute to that conversation, whether or not they want to, or it's just part of the way we do things around here, which is ultimately the end state of creating culture. You don't know necessarily why you do it. You just do it. It's, it's the, you know, the air you breathe, the the color of, you know, the shirts we wear on Friday. It's like, why do we do it? It's, It's the culture, right? Why do we test this code the way we do? it's the culture is, is um,
0: one of those underlying factors masha the allowing everyone who works for the organization to care about the data and protection of the data of your customers now customers could be people buying your product or like let's say you work for a university customers are the students that uh, attend the school is one of those primary like foundations just caring about your customers data
2: um it would be great if everyone cared but not everyone's gonna care mm-hmm. that's <laughs> yeah. that's too too much of a goal um I think there's two ways and this is something that I talked about earlier at source but if you want someone to do something differently you either really need to get them to care which is one way to do it or you make it easy to do it Right? Yeah. Reduce the, the difficulty of it. And yeah. that's kind of where tests or process or reward and recognition. And caring is totally, there's a whole spectrum. They could be altruistic and care about the data. They could be moral and care about not losing the data. They could really care about money and if they get bonuses for having mm-hmm. zero known vulnerabilities. Sure. So there's many ways to get people to care, but there's also right. many ways of making something, whatever outcome you want easier. So it could be the tools, it could be the processes, as I was mentioning earlier, but um, I think it's unrealistic to get everyone, everyone on board on the, on the caring train.
1: Yeah. And it's actually all three, right? This is, this kind of my talk track right now is building security without friction. How do you embed security into the process, the people, the technology in the process across the board to make it easy because developers don't want to change their process uh so we've got to figure out how to bring it to them and bring it into their environment and their tools and if we can do that then we're going to get more security adoption because we can take that friction out of the process that's i think that's what you mean by make it easier
2: totally yeah if it's if it's harder to do it wrong <laughs> than than it is to do it right that's that's the perfect end state and and that's i think that's really on us as security um, tool developers are trying to get things more usable, working with usability experts, right? Just how do we make it, um, frictionless? I, I think you said it really well, Matt.
0: Masha, I want, I want you to uh, share with our audience uh, a little bit about your journey. Uh, you created, uh, Elevate Security. How did, how did that come about?
2: Yeah, so uh started as a regular practitioner around actually, cyber forensics. Uh but then I became obsessed with this idea as I was working for Salesforce. How do we get people to want to do security instead of have to? Because I realized that when people just have to do security, it's bare minimum and you you check your boxes, but you don't get the security culture we're talking about here. So, I started looking into really cool frameworks like behavioral science, things like that. And along the way, um, Found out some really cool. uh, Built some really cool programs. Started Elevate about a year and a half ago. And what we're really focusing on is delivering a suite of products that are focused on getting people to care. So changing their mindset around security, getting giving them the tools to make certain uh, behaviors really easy. So. Things like phishing, reporting suspicious activity, detecting malware, adopting 2FA. And then the last thing is measuring. How do you tell people that they're doing a good job or a bad job? Like, how do you give people the opportunity to, um, you know, say have leaderboards or metrics around, like you're totally rocking it and you've, t- you've done everything we've asked you to do. Thank you for being a security culture leader, or you're totally on the bottom half of the bell curve. Right. And I can show you the data to do it. So, uh, it's a function of being able to have all three components in order to create the security culture that we've just been talking about. Uh, Because the reality is uh, security CISOs have a lot on their plate. Everything from increasing detection and response times to, you know, audits and patching security culture is a full-time job. um, And not many people have, a dedicated headcount for this or, or a team, although I, I personally think that it's, it's a worthwhile investment. So one of my core goals for, at starting Elevate was to leverage my experience of building this out at scale at Salesforce and putting my, my experience into a set of products that helps other companies do it.
0: That's awesome. And if folks want to learn more, I'm assuming they can visit uh, the website?
2: Yeah, elevatesecurity.com.
0: Awesome. Masha, thank you so much for appearing on Business Security Weekly.
2: Thank you so much, Paul, for the opportunity. It was really great chatting with you both.
0: Nice chatting with you. And with that, take a short break, come back and talk about leadership, communication and innovation. So stay tuned.